Welcome to the Poets and Philosopher Podcast. I'm Abe. And I'm Sam. And we respect the great tradition. We're also brothers. We talk about great ideas and the Christian life. If you're someone who loves philosophy, old books, ancient ideas, and God, you should subscribe. Today, we discuss Plato's tripartite soul. This is an idea that I think once you understand its basicness, then you begin to see it just about everywhere you go, um, from advertisements to stories to music to even parts of a speech. This is a wonderful idea that in some sense is almost dangerous to think about because it's like, is this actually true or is it because we think about it so much it actually becomes true? But I think it has some merit in and of itself. I think it's something that Plato uh, in intimated at or intuited to, you know, thought through and said, okay, discovered, maybe that's probably the best word to use there. He discovered this idea uh, inside of a few of his works here. I think you've got Phaedo, uh, the Phaedrus, and the Republic, this idea. And so this is how he starts it off with, at least. He says in, Rep- uh, in the Republic, he says here, It is clear that the same thing will never do or undergo opposite things in the same part of it and towards the same thing at the same time. So, to say it simply, a rock never rolls in two different directions. It's always going to roll in one direction. So, if it's the same thing, it's going to roll in one direction. Uh, So, if we find this happening, that is, something rolling in two different directions, we shall know it is not but one thing but more than one. So he thinks that if you have something that has that goes in two different directions, then there's more parts working at it. And he looks at ourselves, and I believe that uh, when he started thinking about this, he said, he, he gave this analogy of you walking by a grotesque scene. And whenever you're walking by a grotesque scene, there's always this... Um, there's always this part of us that says, should I look? I shouldn't look. Should I look? Should I not look? It's like why everyone slows down whenever there's a car accident. <laughs> it's like they're interested, but also it's like I don't want to see like an arm hanging out or like a body that's, that's you know, or somebody like writhing in pain. I don't really want to see that, but like I've got to stop and I've got to see anyways. And so there's like a part of us that goes back and forth as far as should this, should I not do this? And Plato from that uh, posits that we have more than one part than us. And there's three parts to us, according to Plato. I think there's a lot of merit to this idea. It's one that I think through a lot, but it's one that I still go, uh, I can be unconvinced of this, but I haven't been yet. So Sam, what are the uh, parts of the soul here for us? So we have, and we can uh, put every single part of the soul to a specific uh part of our human anatomy. So he says the head represents the rational principle. Uh, The Greek word is noetic. Um, So I think we're probably going to be talking about rational, noetic, or logos. We're all talking about that that rational principle in us, and it's that the head kind of represents that. And then you have the heart represents the spirited part of man. This is the thumotic. And then you have the bowels or the loins represent the appetitive nature of every person. And the Greek word here is the epithematic. Um, actually, epithematic in Greek really talks about lust. It's kind of your sensual desires, your senses, um, the bed and the table. And it uh, 
it longs for like money or gain. Um, yeah, women, food. Uh, and then the heart, the spirited part, that longs after, you know, it loves courage um, and uh, courage, victory. Uh, and then we have the, the noetic part, the head, that that uh that's love is wisdom or knowledge yeah so those are the three parts of the soul that plato seems to see and, and divide out for us and this is a very uh famous idea of plato's the tripartite soul but probably made most famously whenever he talks about the soul and the city and so during plato's republic there's a, a portion in which he wants to describe how a proper city should, or a proper soul should function for the sake of justice, and so he makes this distinction, or this uh, analogy between the city and the soul. And why is this such an effective analogy, Sam? Why do you think this is this is very helpful for us to think through the city and the soul uh, as things that are, have a lot in common? One thing we want to do when we try to analyze something that's very small and difficult to analyze is to uh, blow it up, to be able to investigate it, investigate its parts. And the soul is quite small. It's inside of us, and it's going to be kind of hard to uh, grasp its curves and its uh, nuances. So what we can do is we can blow it up. And Socrates says in Plato's Republic, that the soul is an analogy. I'm sorry. That the city is the is an analogy of the soul. He says the city is the soul writ large. And if we look at the different aspects of a city, we will see um, because the city is made up of souls. Uh, we'll see what the soul does, how the different parts influence each other. Um, so. I was actually going to read, I have my Alan Bloom's translation of Plato's Republic. In their discussion, what they're trying to talk about is what is justice? That's the main topic of the Republic. And finally, Socrates says, is a city bigger than one man? Yes, it is bigger, he said. So then perhaps there would be more justice in the bigger, and it would be easier to observe closely. If you want first, we'll investigate what justice is like in the cities. Then we'll go on to consider it for individuals, considering the likeness of the bigger in the idea of the small of, of the littler. So why don't we investigate what justice looks like for a city? And that's going to have a lot of import on our understanding of justice for the soul. Yeah, that's very helpful because um, it's tough to know what's really going on in a person's soul. <laughs> Uh, it is much easier to discuss what's much, much, what's going on in a, in a city because you can actually see with your own eyes. Whereas a soul, you could only uh, conjecture and um, use, you know, deductive or inductive reasoning to say, okay, this is this is what seems to be happening because this is happening. But how exactly that's difficult. And so we we think of the city as a way to describe this. But this also really relates to how a city rules itself. So. Each city is going to have a different form of a form of government that's going to load onto these ideas. And you can think about the city that is ran by a single person, which is we would call a monarchy or a kingship. 
this is a noetic form of government. It is ruled by a single ruler, and uh, you want this person to be very wise uh, to do this. And so that would be a, a, a rule of government. It's the rule of the one. Then you have the rule of the few, which is sometimes called an aristocracy or a republic. And this is ruled by a few of the people that are sometimes elected, or sometimes this is just the position they have through other means. It's the rule of the few. But then you have your last case, which is the, a democracy. It's the rule of the many, uh, the rule of everybody. And so those are the forms of government. And each of these cities are going to be dominated by a particular attribute related to how it's ruled. And so a kingship um, is going to be ruled by, um, you would hope, wisdom um, in, in that sense. And then the aristocracy is going to be ruled by um courage and probably democracy you hopefully it's ruled by uh, temperance so those are the regimes of a city it helps us to think through these things and um that has implications about how the city's actually going to get run and so they're always battling each other and i think we'll do another podcast episode on this form of government because it's very helpful to think through um these types of government because each of these types of government is going to drift towards one section. And there's a good side of this government. There's a bad side. So, you know, there's there's a, a monarchy, a kingship, which is wonderful. But then you have a tyranny, which is which is bad. And each of those has their good side and their dark side that we'll discuss probably in another episode. But this theme idea, this connection between the soul and the city is helpful for us because... Um, as we look at the world, we can actually figure out ourselves. This is part of why it's helpful to read different literature. It's because a lot of times in literature or in stories and stuff, we see basically like the conflict of the soul happening on screen for us. And that's really helpful. So, Sam, what are some examples of this conflict on screen happening for us in like movies or books or things like that? Where else do we see this idea of this try? partners or this threeness uh, shown to us. I wonder how many uh, listeners, I guess, have read The Brothers Karamazov. That's a book that I'm reading right now and studying. I'm hoping to write about it. And uh, this is, uh, so there's three characters. There's more than three characters, but there's three main characters, the three brothers in The Brothers Karamazov. Dimitri is the oldest. He's 27 years old. He's dominated by his passions. You see him always talking about money. He's always, uh, you know, seeking to get drunk and, and to get alcohol and wine, and he is chasing women, and he is dominated by that portion. Now, you see a beautiful character development in Brothers Karamazov, and at the end, he becomes uh, a loving person, someone who is transformed. The third or the second son is Ivan, and he's 23 years old, very smart. He went to the university, he published a few book reviews, and he was well known for those book reviews. Uh, some of them were pretty controversial because he wrote against uh, the ch church and state uh, being linked together, and a lot of secularists and atheists uh, kind of got on his side, and he pretty much b disbelieves in the immortality of the soul and even God. And um, he, he is uh, the noetic figure. And then finally, you have Alyosha. He's the youngest, and he is 
uh, he's spirited. He he's the one who loves humanity. He loves uh, he loves his father, even though his father is a worthless man. His father pretty much just forgot his kids, and it's these three figures. It's the the appetitive, the noetic, uh, or the rational, and then uh, Eliosha, which is the spirited, the passions, and you see these three brothers you know the chemistry between them and how they relate to each other and it really is the drama of the soul and one thing that dostoevsky does really well and he's a very you know psychological writer you know he he makes me think a lot about psychology and there's a lot of things he writes about that i i don't know why he writes them and it makes me think about why people do what they do but when Dostoevsky writes about these three parts of the soul, it's complex that Dimitri at the end, you know, he's developed. That means the soul can develop. Also, Dimitri is not just about uh, money and um, women and drinking. He can, he can, you know, he, uh, have a very soft conscience and, and see the truth in things. And then you, you see Ivan. Ivan also is an appetitive person at times. Um, Alyosha is also uh, seeking uh, not women, but he can uh, want to be, I guess, in the monastery. And he is um, not he's, – he's an introvert, which you wouldn't think that with an, uh, a spirited person. Um, the idea is, is that the soul is so complex that these simplifications can be taken too far and become simplistic. And th that's one, one expression of the, of the Platonic soul. And I, I think it's great to see the drama between them, but you can also see it with like Star Trek um, between Spock, Bones and Kirk, or you can see it in uh, Wizard of Oz with the Tin Man, the Lion and the Scarecrow. These all represent one part of the soul. And, um, it is a it, it causes a beautiful drama to see them work together. Yeah, I think that that's that's important to state that, that there's not a uh, that somebody who is dominated by a certain part of the soul, you know, somebody who's the noetic, is not simply just going to be like the deep thinker. Like first off, that's not true to life because obviously there's parts of us and parts of you know certain days of our lives where we're dominated by certain sections. You know, whether we're tired or whether we've had a good night's rest. Or had a good meal like those parts they're always in conflict with one another and that conflict creates a really good story and that's i think the reason why it creates such a good story is because that's how we feel a lot we feel like there are parts of us that are always fighting together it's like when i you know woke up this morning or just woke up just about any morning there's always this battle of i should sleep more or i should get up and do some work or you know whatever it might be but those are the two main ones and because of that internal battle, I have to like negotiate with myself. Should I stay in bed or should I get up and go do things? And that, I think, relates to this conflict of uh, the soul itself. That there's a part of me, you know, in my uh, appetitive part that says, just, just sleep more, you know. Who cares about the future? Let's just think now and um, let's, let's, let's go to sleep. Whereas my spirited nature is like, no, let's rise and meet the morning and um, wake up before the sun gets up 
and get some things done before uh, my kids wake up. And that's exactly, that's how, that's how I should live my life. And so I have to negotiate between that. And so uh, Plato actually has this uh, analogy with the, the charioteer. And this charioteer analogy, I think it's in the, uh, the Phaedrus, which he has one side. There's, so he's got two uh, horses pulling in different directions. And there's the rider of the chariot who negotiates on which way to go. And so his idea is you have the mind of the person, the, the, noetic, prince, the, noetic, the noetic part. That is the charioteer. And he negotiates between the appetitive nature and the spirited nature of a person. And that's how, this, that's how an integrated person is. He directs these two. Some people would say it's not it's not really like that. It's more like an uh you know, a fly trying to control an elephant. That's that's a better way of explaining how we are. Because I think a lot of us understand that most of our lives is dominated by uh, staving off our repetitive nature. The the the, the, the part of us just says just you know do what you want to enjoy right now in the moment and don't think about the future or think about the past. Just enjoy what's now, and that's a, a, a dangerous part. Uh, a dangerous way to live into and a lot of times it leads to it leads to sin so this reflection is just just about everywhere and sam you've mentioned a couple of good ones you've mentioned you know those uh stuff from like the wizard of oz and spot uh, star trek and uh, this also if you're if, if i just asked you uh those of you who are listening all right about harry potter which part of the soul does harry potter hermione granger and Ron Weasley represent. You could probably figure that out pretty easily because, you know, Hermione, she's obviously the smart one. She knows how to cast all the spells and she gets it down. That's the one. She's a noetic principle. She's always trying to make sense and explain things logically. She does not like divination, that sort of thing. Whereas Ron, you know, although, you know, it's not so one-sided though because uh, Hermione, you know, she cannot play chess or wizard's chess at all, whereas Ron can, but Ron mostly is a, is a man who, who who's an appetitive by nature. He loves the sweets and such um, and uh, that sort of thing, whereas Harry, he's like a, he's the man of action. Most of the time in the story, your hero is going to be that spirited nature of a person. He's going to be like the deep, the deep, uh, the person who wants to do those great things. And a lot of times they have a lot going against them, but they still want to do it anyways, even though there's a lot going against them. And that is what makes a, a good story as well. You think about parts of a speech. You've got the uh, logos, the ethos, and the pathos, the, the Greek ideals of a speech. You've got the, the, uh, the actual content. You have the way you present the content. Then you have your own character. And those seem to load on to the noetic, the thumatic, and the epithumatic of a person and you could just like keep going with this you could even go as far as with music and in music there's the uh, there's the uh, uh the melody the harmony and the rhythm and those would load on to again the same parts so it's like you look at the world and you begin to see this pattern in the world and you go wow this is this is something else um but the question we really do have to ask at some point is is this actually true do we actually have a tripartite soul and that's that's one that's really tough to answer. So, Sam, where where do you land on that when you think through this? Like, do is this actually how it is? I'm trying to think of how you could falsify this, um, because the way you could falsify this, I guess, is just to say um, it it doesn't give you any ability to predict the future. 
So one thing with these, I mean, I would like to know, oh, are you a, are you an intellect? You know, is, is your intellect or is your rational principle, your logos, your head, does it dominate you? If so, I will likely know what motivates you and I will likely know what your vices are. Um, or if I could see that you are dominated by your spirit, um, if you're very spirited, you're like a warrior, um, then I could see, yeah, what you're motivated. You're motivated by fame and uh, victory, and I could also know your vices. And the same thing with the um, the appetites. So I I wonder with like personality, like I think the whole personality types. There's a lot of people interested in those right now. Um, there's a book that I've, uh, there, there's an author really that kind of combats this idea of personality types and how they're not the most, uh, there's not that much, um, they're not tested, uh, not scientifically, but there, there's not, not that many studies that prove that they actually are something. But I know a lot of Christians, you know, that are interested in the four love languages. Those are different personality types. Um, you have the Myers-Briggs, you have the Enneagram. Um, so are those valid? What would it mean to say that those are valid? Um, what would it mean to say this tripartite soul is valid? I, I see it in the world. I see, I see people who are motivated by wisdom and truth. I see people who are mo motivated by fame and, um, you know, to, to accomplish things. And then I also see people who are really driven by the here and now, the, the money and uh, looks, appearances, uh, and that would be the, the, the demos, the, the average person um, who's dominated by their appetite. So I think it's valid. I, I, am, I think it's valid. So that's my vote. What about you, Abe? Yeah. It's like one of the things that I would try to do is, just, all right, well, the scripture show these things to be true or not true and there's no direct answer i would say as far as here's the parts of your soul uh, there's no no verse that would say that but god does tell us to love him with all of our heart soul strength and mind and if you don't take soul there you kind of part that aside you know you get your mind and your heart and your uh might or yeah with your might do you have those seem to be the three parts of a person, you know, your, your, uh, your, yeah. So the mind and the, the heart and the, and the, and your might. So those, those seem to be there, but, uh, and then it's also Paul's idea of a soul, body, and spirit. I think you could see those being the three parts of a person, but is that what Paul was actually saying? Was he really buying into this belief? And was God was saying to love him with those things? Was that, is that the point of this? He's like, Oh, this is a way to unlock the, the three parts of the soul through this verse. And, it's quite possible, and that's where I'm at with it. Uh, it, it. At this point, it seems very utilitarian. I think there's a lot here that is useful, and it's a good tool to have in your back pocket to think through things, especially if you're writing a speech. You want to make sure that your speech is composed of these three different parts. Um, if you're uh, yeah, writing a, a proposal for something, you want to make sure it's composed of these three uh, three three parts. If you're writing a story, you want to make sure that your characters uh, exemplify these three and and have conflict over these three things. Um, 
So I think I think there's a lot of truth to this, and this is I, I this is how I would talk about it most of the time. But how does this relate to Christian thinking? I think it's a a, t- a tough one to to show with that. Um, maybe, and I'm not really sure about this, but you can think of the Father, the Son, the Spirit being uh, represented this way as far as the the, the logos, the appetitive, and the uh, the spirited section. I'm not quite sure if that loads very well, but I think there's, there's, there could be something to that. So I guess the last question we should kind of focus on here is, what part should dominate our lives? Which part of us should dominate our lives? Being someone who reads uh, Soren Kierkegaard, as well as other, I guess, existentialist philosophers who, who see a lot of history. They, a lot of people, Plato himself, it probably comes from Plato, um, emphasizes the spirit so much, or I'm sorry, emphasizes the rational principle, the logos so much that, um, that it becomes imbalanced. And I do think like, let's say Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, Alyosha is the hero. He is the one who becomes balanced. Ultimately, at the beginning, he wants to lock himself up in the monastery because it's the only place where there's no sin. Um, that's not good. But um, we also see Ivan. Ivan is the imbalanced soul, and he's imbalanced in his intellect. And he is the atheist. And we see where his life goes. He becomes miserable, and he has no sense of morality. Um, and then we all, I mean, I, I don't think anyone's going to say our life should be directed by our appetites. Uh, that would be a, a hedonist or a, you know, narcissist, but I, I don't think that any, any of our listeners would ever probably say, cast their vote and say, I really think that it's really between the intellect and the spirit. Should we be dominated by a pursuit for truth? Or should we be dominated by the active life that we need to be participating in in, in the world uh, for, I guess, fame and accomplishment? Um, I think, you know, there's there's four different virtues, and I'm not sure if we've talked about this this uh, yet, but the virtue of the intellect is wisdom is prudence the virtue of the spirited is courage and that's between you know if you want to be courageous that means you're not being timid nor are you being reckless um you're being courageous uh the virtue of the appetites is uh self-control moderation prudence well, justice is the fourth virtue. Uh, there's four cardinal virtues. It's the fourth virtue. It is the balance of all of them. And that's one thing. If we focus on each of these parts too much, we become imbalanced. We come, become inhumane. And I want to emphasize the spirited part because we need to be people who are passionate for God. We are we're passionate for the love of other people. And it's not just about doing what is true. Um, well, it is doing what is true, but making sure that truth is significant, that it's full of love. Um, ultimately, when you love God, God, you know, if I want to love my wife the best, 
I, I, I will love God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. And through that, I love my wife. Through that, I go to work and I'm a good worker. Through that, I, I, I eat food that tastes good. And I, 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 <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I was going to uh, say something else about sex. But I mean, I, I, I take part in all of these different ways and I am a balanced person. So I want to, I guess, speak a lot for being balanced, but specifically don't, don't, I guess, poo-poo the spirited part and think that only the, the intellect, um, you know, should dominate. I mean, what, what's your thought on which por- part of the soul should dominate us? Yeah, I, I maybe it's probably uh, a question that would be like, well, I don't think one should dominate it. It depends on what you mean by the word dominate, but which one should lead? I do think it should be our logos that leads us, our mind um, that should lead us. But I don't think that the spirited part of us should be too far behind. I think uh, you think of the, the people in Scripture who seem to be pretty well-integrated people as far as uh, people who just did the right things. And you think I think about uh, Moses, Paul, David, and Jesus. And those men in particular had this attributes of, well, number one, they were deep thinkers, obviously, all of them were. And they thought with a they thought and they wrote a lot down a lot of things or at least they taught a lot of things, but also they were they were men of action they were they were ready to do things that had to be done, and that's that's how they lived their lives and I think that those two integrations there are, are very helpful, um, and that's that's how we should live our lives is this integration of the being led by our minds but also enjoying the whole thing. I think is, is is very helpful. God does not want our lives simply just to be automatons that just simply do the right things or even think the right things, but he wants our hearts and he's after our hearts. And so we should uh, live our lives in a way where our hearts are directed towards God and our affections are tended towards God. And to do that, we have to do it all. We have to do all kinds of things in order for that to happen. So that's that's what I would say about that. Um, but I, I do like uh, this this idea of trying to figure out which one should dominate us um, because it, it, uh, it helps us think more, <laughs> think better about uh, setting up our life in the right way. Yeah. With these different personality types, normally people will not attribute any moral significance to any of them. So like if I were to ever ask someone who's really big into personality types, like our brother, Paul, be like, Hey, should the word should, should I be an introvert or an extrovert? what like there's no moral obligation for either i mean if you're an introvert that's just how it is it's okay to be an introverted but the idea is if you are only an introverted person that means that you're going to not be active in public life uh likely um as i understand it at least and if the christian life is both public and private you need to be balanced and have both so I think this question is saying, hey, is there one part, part that should dominate our lives, which I think it's a good question because, I mean, for me, when we talk about personality types, I normally want to know which is the best kind. Um, but most people are like, no, 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 it's not about that. It's just about 
your proclivities, you know, what are you prone to do? Um, your tendencies. Oh, you know, I, I get that. But, you know, should we be um, very philosophic and, and noetic and distant, you know, like a stoic, distance ourselves from our passions and like, you know, I think a lot of Christians have been influenced by this Platonic soul. Um, it's, I think the Sadducees were actually quite influenced by the Platonic soul. That's why they didn't believe in a resurrection. Um, actually, I have to think about that. Um, but this idea that the body is evil and we don't want to have a body to be enlightened. This is platonic to be enlightened is to get ourselves out of our bodies and to be in the realm of pure thought. Um, that's not how God created the world. He, he created beings, you know, um, there would be no matter in, in the garden in paradise if, if that were so. Yeah, it's sin that it's sin that created what it was matter, and sin is really begins with at least a a part of the mind. So that I mean that so that would be uh, one way to deal with that particular idea. Um, I really hope this discussion has been helpful for those of you who have been listening. Uh, this is uh, a topic that there's more to look at, and you'll probably see it in your own life. You know, maybe maybe you got like three coworkers at work, and you're like, oh. This is how they do this. Or you've got um, some TV show that you really like watching and you've got three main characters and you're going to go, does it line up this way? And maybe it does, but sometimes it doesn't. Um, but I think at the end of the day, what this helps for is if you're reading literature that helps you to read literature better or even just other things. Like um, if you're going to read Nicomachean Ethics by Aristotle he follows this formula like to the T. So he gives this idea, then he shows this idea by the noetic, the thematic, and the epithematic, just religiously. And so that's one way it's helpful to know these things because Aristotle just follows this on down the line. So if you enjoyed this podcast, we would really appreciate a review on iTunes if you use uh, iTunes to, to listen to this or wherever else you listen to podcasts. We would appreciate a review, and uh, we are excited to continue this podcast and discuss other ideas. And so we appreciate you listening. We'll talk to you guys in the next one.